welcome to TLF Gems, a podcast about customer experience and insight from TLF Research. I'm Stephen Hampshire. And I'm Greg Roche. In this episode, we'll be discussing Chapter 7 of our book, Customer Satisfaction. Collecting the data. And perhaps the chapter that, um, that time has, has dated the most. Definitely, I think, yeah. <laughs> yeah, without question. Yeah, I, mean, I think most of, the, most of the decisions you have to make that the chapter sets up are basically still sound. Like, you know, do we choose in, an interview method or a self-completion method? Yeah. Which self-completion method do we choose? Which interview method do we choose? Those are still the right questions. Uh, but some of the background in terms of response rates and web versus email surveys, and, and that technology has definitely moved on. Yeah, but I think, as you're saying, the principles and, 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 and the rationale behind the decisions are, are consistent. And I think even one of the things that I, I noticed when I reread it is perhaps in the chapter we've, um, now we've got it the other way around, that you think about the scope of the research before you get into the, the pros and cons of, of, of the research. Because dependent on really what you want to use the outcomes for mm-hmm. um, does help you decide the way you want to collect the data. Do you want lots of verbatim quotes? Do you want numbers? How many do you want? And all those different things which link to the purpose of the research often actually drive the selection criteria in terms of data collection. I think the other thing that would would drive yeah yes I agree uh, I think the other thing that, that would drive that decision is, is who are we researching yeah uh, because I think one thing that's probably become clearer uh, over the years and, and perhaps has changed a little since the book was written is I think there are some groups of people for whom for instance web surveys actually get you a better quality of comment than a telephone interview will yeah um, to stereotypically engineers for example like to have time to think things through and, and, and make sure they're in control of the structure of the sentence and all the technical detail. Yeah. Um, and you actually get a better quality of comment by giving them the time to do it on their own than you do by, by not pressurising them, but, but having an interviewer there that, that they have to respond to in the moment. Yeah, I mean, very interesting. You start talking about personality types and you know the blue types of people who like to pre-read, consider and do do scoring off often who who do end up in the sort of professional those those sort of professions you're deciding and even a little bit later on when we come to rating scales is 10 numerical points enough for someone with that background or is it <laughs> is it actually refined enough yeah. can we score halves or can we score yeah. out of 100 yeah i need um, i need to give 0.25 for this one <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah so in terms of 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 the chapter um, basically you know there are the two types of interviews you know do you let someone complete it themselves self-completion or do you do assisted completion which makes it easier people would tend to argue perhaps more respondent more respondent friendly yeah absolutely I think the interviewer can do some of the work of figuring out which code does this answer need to, to fill into? Um, so you can ask what seems like a relatively open question, and then the interviewer can often do the work of, of coding that into a closed response, which therefore removes some of the sort of cognitive load from, from the customer. Yeah. It, it's fair to say there are pros and cons. So I think you know, we, we tend to say, well, interviewer methods usually give you more depth. Not always, as we just mentioned, but usually because yeah. the interviewer can, can probe and you know, a skilled research interviewer you know, it is a skill, and, and they they are good at digging for the deeper reasons, for for making sure there's a 
a good story, a good explanation behind any low scores and things like that. Um, so that you know that you do get more on average from a, from an interview mm. method. The flip side of that, from a research point of view, is potentially the strength of having an interviewer is they can pull out some more information. The weakness is that they might potentially bias the information that's yeah. coming. So you, you might get the the sort of um, you know um, one of the potential method biases is this interviewer effect. Yes. Um, so for example, because I'm talking to a person. I'm more likely to, to say what I think I want you to hear, yes. uh, which will slightly make it more positive, potentially. Yeah, ab- 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 absolutely. And I think it does come down to the, the skills of the interviewer in, in scenarios like that. Even when we're thinking of qualitative research, where sometimes you're doing that face-to-face and you've got someone's attention much longer than the 10 minutes or 15 minutes you have on the telephone, it can be really tough if this is the eighth interview you've done on this topic and they're starting to say similar things... You mentally sort of think, oh, I know what they're going to say. And you can miss something where they begin the story, but they then go off at another tangent and it has a different implication. And you really have to keep listening for the meanings that are coming out you know, out there and not fall into, oh, another one that's going to say X, Y, and Z. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely true. Um, we've all probably had that experience of feeling, I know where this is going, and then, then it doesn't <laughs> it goes somewhere else altogether. So in terms of, let, 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 let's talk about sort of, um, you know, the technology email surveys, web surveys, I, 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 IBR. And one of the things that definitely makes the book, you know, look dated is it puts a bit of a down on the response rates that you get, you know, from it because emails, addresses weren't available, you didn't know who your customers were, and boy, has that altered over the last decade. Yeah, I just think like, the starting point... Um, We'll come on to later on the, the, the whole idea about response rates, but the starting point there is you need a good database. Ten years ago, you didn't have a database of email addresses, probably. Uh, nowadays, if you don't, you've got no one to blame but yourself, really. And it, it, you, most people, most people's listed email addresses is at least as good as their list of phone numbers now, let's say. Yeah. And I think increasingly, web surveys are a viable option for most businesses. Response rates vary wildly. Um, you know, the, yeah. the book suggests that, that you get sort of worse response rates online. Uh, that is, I think, now out of date. Yeah. It, it does, it'll vary from better than telephone to much, much worse. And a lot of that depends, again, on the nature of the audience, whether it's business to business or business to consumer, whether it's event driven. So it, is this fired off the back of a specific transaction, which tends to get a much yeah. better response rate? Um, and various other things we'll talk about when we get to, to response rates. So I think... It, it, that certainly moved on. I think web web can have very good response rates. Yeah, uh, you know, absolutely, and has the real advantages of cost and speed. You know, which are two absolutely sort of vital criteria when it comes to to, to ch- choosing uh, data collection methodologies. And um, you know, without going into too much detail, I'd pretty much now dismiss the kind of the email survey option that the chapter talks about, which is basically sending a Word document as an attachment or even in the body of the email, which just doesn't really work. Mm. Our experience with SMS surveys is that they don't tend to work very well. You get a lot of data you end up throwing away. Um, clunky. It's clunky. It is clunky. Um, so I mean, our favoured methods are very occasionally IVR, but rarely, almost never SMS. Uh, our favoured method is web with either an email or an SMS text link to the web survey. Um, and increasingly, we're seeing that kind of text to web, particularly on yeah. consumer surveys, yeah. 
be a really good way to sort of have the advantages of, of SMS. Like you can, you've got a mobile number, you can get it out. It's, an e it's easy for them to click on on the go. Yeah. If you've got a mobile optimized web survey with a small number of questions, it's really easy for the respondent. Yeah. It gets you that the volume you know, very cost effectively, very quickly. You're not going to get a massive interview through that method, but but it is yeah. a very good way to reach a lot of people. And it's interesting you're saying not you know small amount of questions. It, and that's one of the things about thinking again of the scope, you know, are you using this to come to some strategic decision? That methodology wouldn't be right. Measuring operational performance, yep, yeah, you know, absolutely, absolutely. Still do any paper-based surveys out of interest? Well, funnily enough, on the, on the way to the, the meeting room we're recording this in, we walked through design, and in design they have 18 versions uh, in different languages of a paper-based survey that they're doing for a client. Um, now that's an employee survey, and, and I think there are perhaps two places where you still see paper surveys. One is for employees, particularly if they don't have um, sort of easy access to the internet, yeah. although text-to-web on a mobile is one way to address that. But yeah, if you've got lots of employees in the warehouse, maybe a paper is, is, is still an effective way to do that. Um, and the other place they still you still see paper surveys is things like social housing, yeah. um, where again, you want high volume, you need relatively low cost, and you can't assume necessarily that your demographic you're targeting is going to have access to the internet. Yeah, your, your perfect story has, has nearly completely torpedoed the point I was going to make. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> um, um, I should have thought it through a, a, a little bit more. And it was still this point that if it's um, a paper-based, any self-completion survey, you are also reply, um, relying on the customer understanding the word. Is English mm -hmm. the first language? with the employee survey it's being done in 17 different languages because that's going to make it better more accurate but i think that's always a valid um you know question you can just fall into the into the trap of we'll send it out and assuming that your customers are the same demographic as you and you know and, and even choosing the data methodology i can certainly remember someone calling me up and the conversation starting off is you know i want to do an email survey of these international businessmen Hmm. And you're thinking, do you think they'll have time to do this? And no, but that's what I want to do because that will be my preferred data collection methodology. Yeah, but yeah. yeah. So there's probably a, a you know a couple of points there. All, all, all about literally trying to get the response rate better is in essence what you know you know what we're starting to talk what we're starting to talk about there. But perhaps before we do that, do we want to touch on um, telephone surveys and and then sort yeah. of how we boost response rates? Yeah, so I mean, if we move on to to interview-based methods, your your basic options are either face-to-face -face or telephone. I think mo we'd probably mostly say that a face-to-face -face interview is always going to be better, for yeah. want of a of a, a better word. You'll get more depth. You're, there's an opportunity to build more rapport by being face-to-face -face with someone. You can pick up on their body language. You can look around you and, and look at you know the way they're using products, the, the way they're using your catalogue. If it's a business yeah. to business interview, lasts longer as well. You, you can get an hour of the time and keep them um, keep them engaged for an hour and keep probing for you know keep, you know keep probing for an hour. And the downside is that they're expensive, so and, and they take a lot longer. So if you want to do you know five hundred face to face interviews, you can, but that's a lot of man hours and it's going to be. You know, by all means, give us a call, but but it's going to be a, a big number that you get back. Um, so I think it's it's about understanding where where do we need that level of depth. Yeah. So a business to business, 
you know, qualitative depth interview, yes, you do need that depth. Some business to business relationships, you know, a key decision maker, really big account, you know, well, maybe we do need that depth and maybe it is worth spending the money it's going to cost to get that level of depth. But for the vast majority of interviews, and particularly in, in the B2C world, it, it doesn't make a lot yeah. of sense. What about face-to-face -face street interviews? I mean, the, the, it's one of the most miserable jobs anyone does <laughs> in research. Yeah. <laughs> Every trainee has to go through it. It's part of becoming a researcher. <laughs> it's, not, it's not nice. And why is it not nice? Because the vast majority of people tell you to go away. Um, and what that shows you is that it's not a representative sample. You know, it, it is, I think, however hard you work to be at lots of different types of location, at lots of different times of day, on different days of the week, and so on and so forth, Yeah, you are, I think, skewed towards, <laughs> I don't know whether it's kind people or people with time to, get, <laughs> to spare, but it, it, you're not, you haven't got a representative sample of normal people there. And also the nature of it, it tends to be, it's a bit odd because it tends to be a short-based consumer interview, but just done face-to-face, -face, usually because that's the only way of accessing mm -hmm. the people who are perhaps coming out of the shop, who've got that experience um, in terms of getting them, you know, for, you know, you know, from that way. Um, I've seen work quite well. It's a way of recruiting people, perhaps, then for a telephone interview. If, if you're struggling to find customers of your shop or something like that, you know, just get the contact details. From, from that way, um, which I always thought seemed quite a good way because it, it, it's literally, we'll, we'll call you tonight to do a 10 minute telephone mm. interview. Yeah, I mean, in many ways, I think that's been sort of bypassed by, by the growth of online panels. Mm. So in, there are circumstances, yeah, if, yeah, if you said, so. I need people who have visited this particular shop at this particular postcode at this particular time, yeah, okay, we're probably going to have to do that face-to-face. -face. So, for example, a few years ago, we did some work for uh, a client of ours who, who ran a, a sort of chain of pharmacies, sort of chemists yeah. around the north of England, and they wanted Vox Pops with customers who had just visited particular stores that had had a particular refit really the only realistic way yeah. to do that is to, to lurk outside and pounce on people. If a client came to me with that kind of need now, my first thought would be, what can we recruit from the panel? Yeah, because it's cheaper, it's quicker. In many ways, it's probably more representative. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So um, whichever methodology you go down, you tend to get into the, oh, just before response rates, what about mixed methodologies? What's your well, feelings on them? The book is anti. Uh, I tend to be pro, actually. Um, I, I think, you know, in this increasingly, uh, I'm doing air quotes for anyone who comes to me, but in this increasingly omni channel world, <laughs> I do think there's a question, or at least a challenge to the research industry should we match the survey methodology to uh, what suits that respondent? So, Absolutely. should we be able to, to offer phone or, well, not face to face, but, but phone or self completion? Yeah. Um, the software more or less supports that now. It's yeah. not as seamless as we might like it to be, but it does support it. I think we as an industry should be thinking hard about how to address that. It does raise some challenges in, in, in terms of managing that practically. It raises some questions about method effects and how comparable results will be. Uh, but those, I think, are challenges we should address rather than sweeping under the carpet. Yeah, I'd completely agree with with you know with you, and I, I, I think it's because time has, has moved on. It's much much more important in getting that 
accurate, representative you know, set of responses. And even, I think, from a strategic business point of view, in terms of a, you know, a couple of examples, Big Bank, we worked with business to business banking, wanted telephone interviews because it wanted the 10 minute interview. Yes, it wanted the scores, but it wanted the depth mm-hmm. with, with its major customers. And then was quite happy to have an email survey with its other customers where they were smaller and from these acorns oaks could come, but they wanted a cheaper data collection methodology, but they wanted to know the same things, just not quite understand the depth of responses the same way. We've also got a client where we would do face-to-face interviews with some of their key buyers because of the size of the business and the nature of it because they would require an hour's interview where as well as satisfaction, we want to understand future strategy and all that sort of things, which you just couldn't do time-wise or even question-wise over the telephone. But then again, sort of have some telephone interviews with people who are part of the decision-making unit, but perhaps not as influential in the decision-making unit. And I've always been pretty comfortable with those two things. I know there is always a question when you combine them to produce the results, when you have that commonality of a question. Every time the question is, oh, was this these customers or those customers? Is there a methodology issue here in terms of those answers? But very rarely it is. If people are happy, they're happy regardless of the way you interview them, or they're unhappy regardless of the way you interview them. There's much bigger things driving their satisfaction than the interview methodology. Yes, it's got to be right. Yes, it's got to be reliable. But I think it's a little bit of a myth to some degree. Yeah, I mean, it's always hard to be totally sure. But by and large, when we've dug into it, method effects tend to seem to be smaller than than you fear they're going to be. And I, I think they're addressable. And to be honest, probably less damaging than the risk of excluding people by Absolutely. not offering them a method that works for them. You know, that sort of non-response bias, to absolutely. me, is more of an issue than a method effect. Yeah, absolutely, completely. And yet, to pick up on your point of where that sort of hybrid methodology works really well, I think on the B2B side, as you're alluding to, yeah. we, we quite often like a sort of gold, silver, bronze approach where you have perhaps some face-to-face, some telephone, and even some web. And, and reflecting the, you know, the depth of the relationship that there is to talk yeah. about, and again, perhaps offering the choice. So you, you might approach people to do face-to-face. Actually, it's better to do it on the phone. Great, we'll do it on the phone. Yeah. Um, so it's about, I think, meeting the needs of customers better and also thinking about the depth that you've got yeah. to, to go at. It's not just on the B2B side, though. It's on the thing about the social housing sector, which we do quite a lot of work in. There's a really interesting piece of analysis that, that Vicky, one of our colleagues, did recently looking at, at, at the kind of the surveys we've done in that sector. And what she found for one particular client was that where we'd... We'd had a phone survey. The the average age of responders on the phone survey was significantly older than the average age of residents in the population. Right. Whereas when they did a web survey, it was actually the average age of responders was much closer. Or in fact, it was it, it was slightly younger, but basically the same as the age in the population. Interesting. So there is an in, I think there's a challenge there around that that issue of who is responding that you know the sort of non-response bias who yeah. are we excluding through the method that we use and i think the best way to address that is probably to blend different methods together so that we can include as many people as possible and what response rate makes it reliable is the question that's asked numerous times well and and it's a a diminishing returns relationship the the more you 
Well, two, two answers to that question. First of all, diminishing returns between the size of the sample and the margin of error that you get, the, yeah. the sort of statistical um, margin of error around every result. There is also the, the issue of non-response bias. Now, all the, the statistics are based on you getting a 100% response rate. So the, the sort of elephant in the room of surveys is we haven't actually got a 100% response rate. If you have, well done, uh, but no one ever does. That being so, what can we live with? And more is always better. Yes. I feel genuinely comfortable if you've got 60 or 70%. Um, I feel broadly happy if I've got 50%. Once it starts dropping below sort of 30 to 40%, I really start to get anxious about it. It's all about 10% response rate, big sample size. I think you should certainly worry about that. Doesn't mean that the results are rubbish, but it would certainly be a cause of concern for me. Yeah, and there's various stats checks you can do at the moment, do something that gets a higher response rate, match that, perhaps change methodology. I can think of one client where we've done a telephone survey to see what the truth is and then adjusted self-completion to that, done that at the same time and understand, particularly an example you gave where age might link to satisfaction quite significantly. So you don't want to have a skew or, or, or whatever the demographic is. You just want to make sure it's representative mm. is, is in essence what you want to do. Yeah, and I think that the thing that scares me is quite often you'll be talking to a client, particularly in the B2C world, perhaps in a sort of pitching, tendering stage, and they'll be saying, well, we need to send out you know, 500,000 questionnaires because we know we get a 3% response rate. I think, well... You're throwing money at the problem to get to get the appearance of a reliable sample. Yeah. But that that the the throw money at the non, the non-response bias. Don't, don't just throw money at getting the sample to look. Bit, well, it, the sample will be bigger. Yeah. But you might just be adding up more, more bias. numbers. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, and it does it does scare me that. Yeah, you'd be better doing a different methodology. You know. Yeah. You know. Absolutely. So, um, what's the best ways of getting the response rate up? Yeah, well, the chapter does an interesting job of kind of looking at all the different ways yeah. you could do it. Yeah. Uh, it starts with having a good database, which is, is a point worth making. Uh, and that's probably our pet bug to, to rant about, but yeah, it is important. Um, I think the, the sort of the number one recommendation, and I, I would stand by it in, in, in the broad principle here, is introducing the survey well. So that the, in a nutshell, it, the customer, when we get in touch with them, understands A, it's a legitimate piece of research, we're not trying to sell them something. B, I understand who they are, how they got my phone number, what they want to talk about, and C, the client is going to do something with what I tell them. So it's worth 10 minutes, 15 minutes of feedback. Yeah, and particularly that C bit. Mm. Um, in, in, in some ways, I was thinking, perhaps over more recent years, I've even exaggerated the first point even more Doing a survey is a really good act, not something that you should apologise for, mm. not, you know, not something that's seen as an interruption. Yes, there are those sort of warnings, but basically we want to listen to you so we can improve our business to make you more satisfied. So I think being really confident about that message up front and talking about the bigger picture, we're here to listen to you, we're here to make this better, please give us your time. And I think I've got sort of more um, bold about that. The more I see successful clients do the third point and feedback into the loop, we've, you know, you said we've done, we've listened, and and that dovetails very nicely into the opening bit of this that we're going to act upon it because 
no doubt those who where I've seen response rates go up it's because they do action the survey because mm. we're all doing that little equation in our mind is it worth me spending 10 minutes of my life saying this filling this out is it going to make a difference yeah and the more that that yes it's going to make a difference is reinforced because it has previously with that organization just seems obvious yeah and i think setting aside the the research reason as to want a high response rate I think that's a very good argument that a high response rate is a good measure of the extent to which you've convinced your customers you are using the survey to listen to them. Yeah. Um, so it, it's it, it should be a key metric for everyone, really. Uh, uh, you know, uh, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that it's sometimes difficult on the larger surveys to introduce because it was again you, you you're into the cost element of 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 that um, and some invisible costs like how do you manage the process of people who don't want to be surveyed. Yeah, I mean, there are occasionally practical things there. I mean, my my view on that is that those challenges are, are they're actually pretty easy to address. And I know it's a little bit more complicated in the sort of GDPR world. So we, you probably have to be a bit careful to allow some time for people to mm. opt out. But still, I think all those things are very addressable. As you said, it should be seen as a positive, not a negative. Yeah. So if if we phone up, and our interviews are all really nice, so if you say, I don't want to take part right now, I'm watching Corey, um, they'll take that as, a, as the answer and they'll, they'll put the phone down. They're not going to mither you. Um, so I, I think it should be seen as a positive, and, and I don't think we should be very frightened of how it's going to come across to customers. I think the other thing the chapter does is it also highlights probably the two of the main drivers. Having a decent questionnaire that is five to ten minutes long isn't. 20 to 30 minutes long and is relevant and if the exploratory research has been done well so the questionnaire is really based on the things that matter most to customers that should certainly make the questionnaire more interesting more relevant to the customer than asking them lots of questions about things they aren't really interested in that you might be interested in. Yeah, I, I, I remember years ago in the early days of Twitter, I remember tweeting something like, your questionnaire is too long. Yes, I mean you, <laughs> because all questionnaires <laughs> are too long. Um, and I think, you know, yes, the length of the questionnaire does have a big impact on, on response rates. More to the point, the perceived length and difficulty yeah. of it when I land on it. So whether that's the initial few seconds of the interview or the first page I get to on your web survey or, you know, the first page I look at at a paper survey, does it look like it's going to be a pain or does it look like it's going to be quite interesting and quite easy and quite short? Yeah. Um, one, one method we found that was really effective on the, the, sort of the, the email or the text introduction to a web survey is if you can say, you know, click here for a, for a quick three question survey. Okay, we can do three questions. Yeah. Um, as long as that's true, that's a very yeah. good way to, to reassure people this genuinely is a quick yeah. survey. The percentage bars as well are obviously a pretty common tool. So you can see I'm a quarter of the way through the survey. Oh, I feel I'm making progress. I'm halfway. This is quite easy. I'll see it through now, three quarters of the way through. And it, it, it just gives that confidence that it is going to take the time it says it is and you've mentally allocated to it. Anonymity is the other, the other driver that, 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 that we talk a lot about and is, I think, often overlooked in terms of, well, this is really why independent market research companies exist, mm. because they're independent. And it, you know, the, the fact that that is the, 
best probability, the best opportunity for someone to tell you the truth cannot be underestimated. Absolutely, yeah. And I think we've all probably filled out the little feedback cards in a restaurant at the end of a meal. And you're not totally honest, are you? Because <laughs> it, even if you're going to run away from the restaurant by the time anyone reads it, uh, you know that, well, he was a bit inept, but Greg seemed nice and I don't want to hurt his feelings. So it's very hard to be completely yeah. honest and give give the useful feedback that would be good for Greg to read, uh, knowing that it's going to upset him. Particularly even also in situations where there's an ongoing relationship. Imagine if Greg in this fantasy world was your bank manager <laughs> who would make decisions on loans and stuff like that. How honest are you really going to be yeah. when you know this person has some influence um, over future business? Yeah, and even just on a human level, it's hard to, to know we're going to upset someone else. So yeah, that, that, that bit of objectivity, the reassurance that your data is contributing to a sort of aggregate view does help people to be to be more open and honest. You do have to balance that with the need to be able to deal with specific issues. And that's a little bit true in B2C and, and particularly yeah. true in business-to-business relationships. I think that for me, a good B2B customer experience, so a customer satisfaction survey, needs to have both. Um, so you need to be able to say, what are the general lessons we can learn? You know, what are the systematic things yeah. we need to address? But also, this particular client has got this particular issue that we can just go and fix, and they're worth 20 million quid a year to us, so yeah. of course we're going to go and do that. So you need both of those, I think. And, and the only way to do that is to make it, we always talk about com, you know, confidential rather than anonymous. So, or sort of, well, initially confidential. Pick your words carefully, Steve. Rather than anonymous, but with the opportunity to be identified. Yeah. Um, so just structurally, what we would always do is at the beginning of the interview say, this can be confidential if you want it to be. And at the end of the interview say, reflecting on what you've said, are you happy for your name to be attributed to what you said or would you rather remain anonymous? And that works really well. I think that hits the best of both worlds. And even sort of post-GDPR, it's still, if I had to say a figure, it's about three quarters are happy to waver their an- a- anonymity, which yeah, gives you more varies, than enough yeah. to, 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 to sort of have some actionability with, mm-hmm. with, you know, with the specific people. And interestingly, some work I, I've recently done with a client looking at who chose anonymity, because I think the default situation, even as we're talking, well, it's going to be someone who said lots of horrible things, and there are those people who are using it to protect. But the most frequent customers were actually those who were really, really satisfied. It was quite interesting. And what we read into that is they were choosing anonymity because they just didn't want any more contact yeah. in the survey process. They were happy to give feedback, they'd given the feedback and they were really happy. And I definitely don't want to be contacted again, but there's your feedback. Mm. And, and, I, and I thought that was quite quite interesting. Yeah, it, it definitely isn't just the unhappy people. And in fact, again, particularly in the business to business world, when you ask that question, are you happy to be you know, identified? People tend to say, I'm not telling you anything, I'm yeah. not told them 30 <laughs> times, believe yeah. me. Um, Absolutely. So more often than not, that's what you find. Yeah. What about other things? I mean, the book does quite a good job of um, discounting money and colour and things like um, and things like that. Colour in the sense of using a colour questionnaire rather than a black and yeah, white one right. on paper. Yeah. Um, I mean, I... It's not direct mail we're doing here, is it? This yeah, is, this is I, mean, I think, part of the I think trick. 
a well-designed questionnaire is one that looks easy to complete. So it should be inviting in that sense, rather than talking about fonts a work here, of art. <laughs> uh, well, I, fonts do matter, but yeah, that, perhaps that's a, a rant for another day. I, in terms of money, the question for me is not whether it's effective. You know, will you have more responses if you incentivize them? Yes. Will you have more thought through, considered responses from people who really want to give you their feedback? Or will you get more straight line, seven, 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 so that I can get the incentive? Yeah. yeah. So it's the quality of the response rather than the quantity that, that troubles me. Yeah. I've not ever really seen money or prize draws. I think on employee research, it makes... Um, it can make quite a good difference in terms of doing something that supporting a charity or an organisation. It can be a statement for you know from that point of view. The same on a customer one that if donations are made. But I've never really seen. And keep in mind, you know, we've we've both been doing this job getting on for twenty years now. It make a big difference. I think you could spend the money better. Yeah. Uh, on something else. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. One of the things that definitely does make a, dis- a difference is reminders, particularly on sort of emails or surveys. Mm. And I think that's something that we've really learned over the last couple of years mm. so much more that getting a reminder out does make a big difference. Yeah, and I think we, we've definitely evolved our process over the years where, you know, initially you sort of replicate the, the postal survey approach where you send out, you know, 3,000 you wait for two weeks and then you cut off and maybe you send a reminder halfway through. And that's actually just not the most effective way. It's not how people deal with email. So what, what you tend to find is a massive lump of response a day or two after you send instantly, the email, really, yes. pretty much instantly. And then it, it, there's a really steep tail off. And yes, there'll be some responses after, but basically it, 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 there's a massively steep tailing off. Every time you send a reminder email, you get another little peak and another massively steep tailing off. So rather than see it as, I send 3,000 emails and wait two weeks, I would definitely see it as, you send 3,000 emails, wait three or four days, send a reminder, wait three or four days, send another reminder, send three, wait three or four days. And then depending on the, the peaks you're getting, yeah. that, that two reminders is probably it, yeah. but you might consider a third. So if it goes out Monday, reminder Wednesday, reminder following Monday or Tuesday, yeah. and that's probably... That's what you're going to get, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's... Um, and it does make quite a big difference, doesn't it? We yeah. see, we, you know, we've seen that with, with quite a few clients. Perhaps the sort of final thing to think about is this, when do we survey? And I know it depends on whether it, you know, it's a, a relationship survey or a transactional survey, but what's your thoughts on tracking um, or continuous surveys versus, um, versus one-off surveys? I think ideally you need both. I think um, in the business-to-business world, it's often very difficult to do a tracking survey in any meaningful way. So it'd be very hard for us, for example, to do a tracking survey. I think it wouldn't really make a lot of sense. So I think a one, you know, a once-a-year relationship survey for yeah. a business-to-business, you know, service provider such as us is is obviously the right answer. Yeah. On the other hand, if you are a big insurer, let's say, um, you know, yes, you absolutely want loads of trackers looking at, you know, your claims handling experience, your complaints experience. No, make a difference. Renewals, change of address, all of those things are going to need, you know, a survey at that touch point. I do think you need a relationship survey as well, but for those kind of big consumer brands, 
the, the sort of Venn diagram of what's a kind of brand survey and what's a relationship satisfaction yeah. survey tends to become quite overlapping. Absolutely. Um, yeah. So the logic for having a relationship satisfaction survey as distinct from a brand tracker mm. becomes often quite difficult. Uh, so there's a kind of sliding scale from very event-driven focus for, for those sort of B2C yeah. Um, relatively, the kind of organisations that have very low touch with most customers with occasional high points, which is, and sure is a good example of that, yeah. versus B2B right the other end where, you know, it's really probably only a, a relationship survey for, for many organisations. Ideally, as I say, you'd want both because you want to understand how what you do affects how customers feel. And that's what an event-driven yeah. survey gives you. And you also want to understand how the feelings of customers in general, your population of customers, affect their behaviour, and that's yeah. a relationship survey. So ideally you want both, but pragmatically it's not always easy. And that's a really good way of doing the sort of the full loop on this, because for those two different types of surveys, different objectives, you may well choose two different survey data collection types. You probably would. Very likely, yeah. Reality, and that's why you've got to understand what are we getting out of this piece of this piece of, of, of research. That's, that seems like a really nice way to end it, except I've got a curveball that I was trying to throw in at some point. <laughs> so let me just throw the curveball in of getting your views on, particularly with technology now, about real-time reporting. Oh, that is a curveball. Um, the trouble with real-time reporting, I like think... Where you start with the trouble rather is, than the positive. I don't <laughs> think it exists. Um, so, so what I mean by that is you can have very, very, very quick reporting, right? almost instantaneous reporting on the surveys that have just been completed. So let's say for the sake of argument, we're, we're doing a web survey, just to, yeah. to simplify it. So customers just completed, clicked submit survey, their data pops into a database that is then updated and a, a dashboard feeding from that database, you know, updates with their score. Easy. Yeah. Brilliant. We do that for a lot of clients and that's fine. At what point do we drop off a customer from feeding into that dashboard? What do you mean drop off, not include their results? Yeah, or so... Do we keep the last 50, the last 100, Whatever real-time reporting hours? is, all it really is is saying it's, it's rapidly updated, rolling data over whatever period we choose to define. Yeah. Would it not let you see some immediate peaks and troughs as things are going well or badly? Um, well... Contingent on on where you draw the cutoff on the sort of the beginning period of you know, which customers do we count in our dashboard that's feeding off this database? Is it everyone today? Everyone over the last six hours? Everyone the last hour? Yeah, you know those are decisions we can make, but we have to make them. Then there's a trade-off between the volume you're going to get over the last hour versus the reliability of the results. So you can, I think, it's usually. A bit of a red herring uh, and I think people usually are devoting an awful lot of money and resources to solving the tricky technology things around getting it to work and the volume you need to make it even look like it might be working without really addressing why do we need this information what is this telling us yeah. and what decisions have we made about what it actually means. Yeah. I think you've made the point there that there's two different things one is an ongoing score which is a score. Mm. You're not, but it's a completely different thing to draw some conclusions out of that and certainly anything that's going to how do we change that score significantly. Mm. And, and, and again, just to probably do the same ending again, 
is again that probably leads to different data collection methodologies. It does. Okay, well, let's, uh, let's draw a line under it there with, with my rant about real-time reporting. Uh, thank you very much for joining us. If you're listening on iTunes, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And if you want to get in touch, you can find us on Twitter, at TLF Research, or at tlfresearch.com. And we'll be back next month to look at Keeping the Score, Chapter 8. Thank you. Thank you.